Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 13th of December. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. The downgrading of Our Lady's Hospital in Navan is being bitterly opposed locally and is also of significant concern to doctors in Drogheda who say it will result in too many patients being brought to Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, that that will be unsafe and that patients may die. Let's uh, continue this conversation once again this morning uh, to help us to do that we're joined by TDs in Mead West, leader and founder of A2, Pader Tobin, and Finnegale Junior Minister Damien English. And a very good morning to both of you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. There's to be an ambulance bypass protocol put into effect from tomorrow onwards. Minister, what is that going to mean in terms of the status of Our Lady's Hospital in Navan? Uh, so, so my understanding of this, Michael, is, uh, and again, I was asked Stephen Donnie last night that uh, one of these lead clinicians would come on to your programme today to fully go through the details of this as well to explain to everybody. So the protocol that's, in, that's been put in place for tomorrow will mean the diversion of critically ill patients in the category A and B, patients with any acute surgical problems should not be brought to a ladies uh, of hospital nav, and that's practically already in place at the moment. What it means is effectively... About four patients, I'm told, uh, a day, who are four ambulance transfers, won't be going to Navin in at this moment in time. So it's a protocol that's been put in place um, that's been asked for, for for many, many years. And in fairness, at all the discussions and meetings I've had with Jerry McIntyre for the last number of years, his biggest concern was that there are critically ill patients going to Navin and then find, go, transfer from Navin to another hospital. He has always believed, as a lead clinician, that that is, um, doesn't help patient outcomes and that it's an unnecessary change. That's what's happening tomorrow, is that protocol, those patients will mm. go straight. I, I'm not, do you, do you believe it's the right thing to do? Is no. it the right course of action? Oh, OK, Michael, on this, I, I have to trust that the medical people I sit down with and talk with repeatedly for the last couple of weeks, as well as all the last couple of years, are telling me the truth and that they are genuinely concerned. I've sat down and discussed this with the doctors in Drogheda as well, and they're very clear on this. If the numbers that transfer are too high, you're only adding risk to Drogheda. So they've sat together and worked out what's the best protocol that, that allows for critically ill patients to go to Drogheda to get the best 
possible medical treatment to see the right specialist there while keeping the majority of people using NAV and A&E. So that's a protocol that kicks in tomorrow as it stands. Separate to that then, and just to finish the point, Michael, separate to that, is the review around the reconfiguration mm. of service for the North East. Can you hold that? Can you hold that? Because no. yeah. we've well, come back to... On the, on the last piece, I strongly believe that the services then need to be kept at Navigate yeah, okay. and we need to invest in that. That's okay, but, uh, absolutely strong on that. But if we can That's come back to that, if we can come back to that in a, a moment. Uh, as far as you're concerned, um, this is the right thing to do and you have come to that conclusion. You're satisfied that it's the right course of action based on the views of uh, the medical expertise in Navan and the medical expertise in Drogheda and that they're satisfied that they'll be able to cope with this additional workload. Yes, Michael. And I've been very clear with Minister Donnelly over the last couple of weeks and all my engagements with him um, that this has to be result in a better medical outcome for patients. And, 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 no, and no other reason, no other agenda. Okay. And that we should try to keep as many people in Avon as possible. Could, because I want to see our Avon hospitals, the, the top okay. class, as yeah. it is fully utilised. But I also have to accept medical advice once the doctors on all sides tell me it's true. I've also... OK, let me bring Peter Tobin in there, if I can, Minister. Um, Peter Tobin, all of the doctors, that's the doctors in Navan and the doctors in Drogheda believe uh, this is the right course of action. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank the hundreds of people who came out yesterday and braved the sub-zero temperatures um, to um, put of the A&E in Navan. It was absolutely fantastic. And what's really become clear in the last while is that Navan, actually, A&E, is regionally significant. And what I mean by that is that what happens in Navan actually has a knock-on effect now in Drada, in Calvin, Munagar, and in Blanchetown as well. And that's why we saw protests uh, in all of those towns uh, yesterday uh, as well. So, you know, what's happening here, I think, is that the HSC and probably Damien's view there is becoming more isolated all the time. So you know, the HSC were very strong in the summertime about you know, the need for disclosure, the need for the reduction of, of services there. But in actual fact, we see that uh, senior clinicians, consultants in Drada, in Mullingar, doctors now in Mead, uh, staff in the hospital, all coming out and saying, actually, this is the wrong plan. This is medically unsafe. Well, you've just heard the complete opposite of that from the minister who says that the doctors... Michael, can I make an intervention here? Mm -hmm. In relation to the doctors in Drada, I asked them a few weeks ago to put in writing their concerns, the same as I did last June. Mm -hmm. And that is why the protocol... Uh, that was originally been talked about last week that you had that discussed on your programme that has changed because those doctors well, and those people can I, that's a brief question with the yeah. numbers of people and, and I think and, and so my understanding from talking to those doctors which I do nearly every night of the week um, that they accepted this protocol okay. is right now Michael. when I talk to doctors in Navin Hustle they tell me this protocol is needed when I talk to nurses in Navin Hustle they say it is but they say a minimal protocol and that is all that is needed to protect the critically ill patients, the 95% or more of other patients... Can I just briefly come in there? Okay, Patrick Shipping. Rather than uh, talking down the clock here, it would be just possible to have two sides of this debate here for a second. So its accuracy is really important in relation to this because many there's many a slip here uh, with lack of accuracy in relation to our own hospital, and it's too important. Um, so first of all, Damien has been on the record in saying that there would be a feasibility study done in the review that happened. There was no feasibility stu- study done there. What exactly is the protocol in writing? Because the, uh, the last protocol that was published by the HSE and given to the uh, ambulance uh, personnel was the protocol that was actually knocked back uh, by the minister. The minister has said that there's, there's going to be, that's not going to be acceptable, but none has been published 
either by the minister. So can I help there? Can I help there, Michael? Yeah. A protocol, my understanding, and I'm surprised Father hasn't seen this, has been circulated for everybody last night. I asked Stephen Donnelly last night at my last meeting with him that absolutely the HSE need to issue a statement to go with this and put a lead clinician needs to come on the airways to explain to everybody what is happening. So the protocol in place will is effectively that as, as of tomorrow morning, whether the 14th, critically ill uh, and one category and be patients with any acute surgical problems should not be brought to our ladies' hospital Abbey. Now, can I be honest, Mike, in my understanding... No, just uh, Patrick Chobain, come in there, please. Okay, so, now, the hospital campaign, I think most people would say, is a significant stakeholder in what's happening. But you didn't get a a renewed... uh, No, there's been no consultation at any stage. You you didn't get a renewed protocol last night. By by the HSE. So, can I come in? Can I come in there, Michael? And I know that the... I know the ambulance personnel very, very well, and they're happy to to provide that to us as soon as they get it. So they haven't received it as well. So here we are, the day before the protocols meant to come in, and we know that senior uh, medical professionals in the area haven't seen any ambulance um, uh, bypass protocol uh, at this stage. And and that's absolutely shocking. Okay, this was issued last night, Minister, was it? So, so just to be to be clear, I, I got this from from doctors last night. So we're going to make the point, Michael. But the National Ambulance Service doesn't have it yet. Michael, well, I, well, I'm not. I don't agree with it because they have agreed to this protocol. Now, can I make the point, Michael? Please, if it's okay, for one second. The difference with me and Patrick, we're not the medical people. On the radio, Damien. Michael, can I can I make the point? Sorry, Michael. Patrick, with respect to you or me, the medical people, the medical decisions, the lead clinicians of all these services, if they make these decisions with these protocols, not you or I or any mass in the street, it's they have to make these. So they don't share them with you or me before they're made. Well, 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 see, there's a bit of a problem with that statement, Minister, because it appears to all accounts that the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, signed off on a totally different protocol, you're telling us, last week, and then uh, has come around to the view that that uh, wasn't appropriate and now has introduced a new protocol a day after the uh, original protocol was to come into effect. So so if I I can help uh, Michael with that, um, the the discussions for the last couple of weeks have been how to protect those critically ill and to make sure they get the best treatment. And we've been always been told that's approximately three or four ambulances per day. The protocol then was meant to reflect that. A protocol that was written up last week really scared everybody, uh, certainly on the lure then, because they believed that too many... It was approved by the minister, was it not? No, no, Michael, can just be clear on this. So my understanding, the minister approved uh, a, a sanction that a protocol be drawn up that reflected... A critically ill patient. So he didn't and, read it. Well, it, my understanding is that when he did read it, he was not. And did when did he read it? Did, did did he read it on Thursday night when Thomas Byrne rang him? So can I finish? When I, I was also talking to him. No, well, well, when did he read it? Yeah. So Michael, when the protocol was drawn up, which did not reflect the decision, Minister. When did the minister realise that? Uh, well, I presume last Thursday. So immediately. Thursday night when Thomas Byrne rang him. So Michael, can I finish the point, please? So immediately, uh, the lead clinicians of the Lures Hospital, Navin Hospital, and of the Ambulance Service, as well as Colin Henry, the National Lead Clinician, yeah. were brought together last Friday to review uh, that written up protocol, which did not reflect the decision. The Do you not see the problem with that, that uh, the minister uh, uh, sanctioned the protocol, the doctors wrote to the minister and said, don't go ahead with this, You've, you'll have blood in your hands, 
the minister did nothing. Then the doctors met with management in Drogheda on Monday right. and still nothing happened. Then Thomas Byrne rang him on Thursday night and he did something. So Michael, I'm going to try to explain this the best I possibly can. Well, well, is that is that is that version of accounts wrong? I, I think it's slightly wrong, but I, I can. Wait, wait, just just, just tell us which bit is wrong. Yeah, so I can just tell you what I know. Okay? Well, well, just tell us which bit is wrong, and then yeah. tell us what you know. Okay, so Minister Tahani sanctions a, a, a protocol. The wording of that then is written and brought back to him. The doctors in the Lewis Hospital, at my request, I want to be very clear on this. Put in place and writing their concerns. <laughs> That's rubbish oh. as well, Damien. In fairness, everybody has been uh, talking to these doctors in relation to this. Uh, no, I didn't say the words, Michael. I'm just a, sorry, sorry. It seems like Stephen Donnelly didn't read the protocol. No, so, Michael, can I come in there, please? You've asked me to explain it to you. Damien is at sea here at the moment and he is peppering his language. Um, that's not true. Well, yeah, what I'm saying. Hold on one second. He's peppering his language with the sentence, my understanding. And my understanding is a euphemism to say, I really don't know, this is what I think happened, okay? Now, what we do know happened... Michael, I'm happy to talk the, to... The, the HSC issued a directive... Let, 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 the minister, let, let the minister give his version first, Padre, and then we come back to you. Okay. Right, so I'm, I'm trying to, if I can, Michael, right, the protocol that was written up did not reflect what the minister had sanctioned, did not reflect what the doctors in the Lourdes Hospital and Navin Hospital and everywhere else had agreed. The minister originally said that this is not acceptable, you need to come back together to work out what is an appropriate protocol to protect everybody. That has happened last Friday and over the weekend, and the new protocol that, that I saw last night, that I presume will be announced today, and the HSE can explain themselves, minimises the number of people who will be going to the Lewis Hospital, therefore minim- minimising any adverse risk on the Lewis Hospital. Now, I want to be clear, Michael, on this, from my understanding, from talking to all the doctors from all sides of this, the majority of these patients uh, that will now automatically go to the Lewis Hospital or some other hospital. I, I, I already today end up in these hospitals yeah. in most cases. But you, you, we have to be honest about that. You, 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 you didn't address the issue as to whether the minister had read the protocol, had looked to see the protocol, right. had any understanding of what was in the protocol before he got a call from Thomas Byrne. Because oh, well, it, I'm, going to, I'm going to assume he, he, he did, Michael, because let's be clear... But it was only after a call from Thomas Byrne that the minister decided to act. Yeah, I, I don't know where that's coming from. From Thomas Byrne. Well, I can only speak for myself, okay? When the doctors contacted me last week to say the protocol did not reflect what they agreed, uh, they and me and everybody else immediately contacted all the relevant authorities, including the Minister of Health. Okay, well... Then the protocol changed to correctly reflect... Well, then... Well, 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 the best I can do for you, Michael, this All right, well, then uh, the HSE stepped over the mark or tried to mislead the Minister if... uh, uh, And and quite possibly the Minister hadn't taken the time to read the protocol. Uh, Peter Tobin... It should be much easier than this. It should be a minister in charge. There should be a line of authority. The minister should direct the HSC what to do, and the HSC as public servant should implement it. But what's happened very clearly over the last week is the HSC stated that the A&E was going to be closed. It would be bypassed from the 12th, they said. A stink was kicked up in the main by the people of Meath through the hospital campaign. The government was forced to, to intervene and said, no, that this isn't going to happen. And then what happened was... The minister said we'd have a slimmed-down version of the bypass. We went back to the HSE. They issued exactly the original bypass. Again, a stink was, had, had to be kicked up and, and a kerfuffle and political pressure put on. 
And only in that scenario did we see uh, the HSE roll back in terms of what okay, the law would be. Okay. But the point I would say is... We've, we've, we two, we've two different versions. Michael, the version that I've just articulated is the version that's on the door. But, 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 well, let's so in other words, I asked in, in a Taoiseach's or leader's questions last week, mm. it was answered... Uh, by the minister uh, Michael McGrath, and the week before by the Taoiseach. Uh, by the week, uh, yeah, all oh, right. And yeah. uh, two ministers the then last the week. Two ministers that Mary Butler and Michael McGrath saying it would be implemented no. uh, on Monday of this week. Uh, okay, just, just I, let me go back I, to the I, minister I, I, on the on, on the bigger picture. Just in the last couple of minutes that we have left, minister, uh, is this the first of a two-step process to close the emergency department? Well, that's where I disagree uh, with, with Tadar. Uh, and we both want the same outcome here. We both want to have an A&E kept open and we both want to have an A&E uh, to get additional resources to be able to treat more patients. So we all agree on that. So th- two things here. Separate to this protocol, which is a separate issue, is this review that the Minister sanctioned a number of months ago. And in that review, it's assessing the capacity in Navan Hospital and all the surrounding hospitals and the specialties there to provide the top-class service we want. Out of that review, uh, I would be pushing for the same as Father and everybody else that Navan gets the additional resources to be able to treat the patients that go there. At this moment in time, the doctors tell us, who I trust, tell me that the specialists they need for these critically ill patients are not in Navan. So to protect people now, in these weeks ahead, this protocol is put in place. I've been very clear to say this to the Minister and everybody else. I accept this protocol on medical advice, but that is totally separate to the ongoing review, which in my view... I thought the, re- I thought the, review, was, I thought the review was complete. And re- no, the, uh, review, the review has not been shared with any of us yet. No, and but it's that. complete. Uh, the Minister so, uh, received the review in October, did he not? Yeah, so the two, the two okay. parts. The review, so, Michael, is the two things that we do. is the assessment and also... The, which I've discussed with Pavel Sayer is the business case to invest in Navan Hospital. Right. I very clearly said. Minister. You, the finish point, Michael. I've asked. Can I come in there, Michael? Fully teased out on this. Well, well okay. Right. You, want, you, want it, you want it fully teased out. Do, do, do you want to do it uh, in a considered way? Uh, and yes, what, I what I want to know, Minister, is why have you not seen this yes, review? So, so if, the, if, the, if Stephen Donnelly has had it since October, why have you not seen it? Why is Pavel not pub- to be not seen it, why is it not being published? So, right, so, 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 so on that, I am very clear about this, and I have been since, since the review was sanctioned. When that review is ready, and it's on the Minister's desk, it's ready. When he, it's so ready. when he, sorry, to, there's a relation to when he, it's uh, complete. Agrees, sorry, Michael, can I finish the point? When he agrees to release that review to all of us prior to any more decisions, that uh, review has to be fully teased out on this programme at the hospital campaign. Why doesn't he publish it? Why, why is he not ready to publish I, I have no doubt he publishes Why it. is he not ready to publish it? What's the problem? So, so uh, to be honest with you on that, I don't know that. But I, I, It's I, ridiculous I often, though, isn't it, Minister? Can, can I make the point? I often have reviews on my desk then I have to release them in public as well. It goes through a process, then it's formally republished, and then we can all tease it through. What's clear to me is that then that's where we can have this conversation. Okay, we're two months on since the Minister received it. Patter Tobin on that note. You just... Listening to Damien is like listening to a parallel universe. It's so far from the truth. Damien would be good at a creative writing course in a university because... There is nothing in relation to the facts here. This is the man that promised a new regional hospital in Navan, remember. So it is very clear. We have asked the minister. Well, I, think, I, I think we have to ask, Father, is, is he happy enough? No, you've had the majority of this interview. We've asked the minister in a parliamentary question, does the review 
uh, have any um, efforts to do a feasibility study in what can be done to make Navinani stronger. Categorically, they have said no. Minister Damon English is talking like there's a potential within the HSC's plan for a better, stronger more invested, more resourced A&E. The HSC have a very clear plan to close the A&E. And that is absolutely logical from the HSC's perspective. And this step, the bypass that's happening, is part of that. And anybody who doesn't see that... All right, let's, let, 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 let's give the Minister a chance to respond to the creative writing charge. Are you spinning a fairy tale, Minister? Uh, Mike, I'm not going to get involved in silly politics. Just to be very clear here, this protocol, in my view, is to protect lives. Okay, for a long number of years now, in this debate around the future of a and in Ireland, this has been always put in front of us that there's patients' lives at risk. That bit now, in my view, is dealt with by the protocol. It now means we can have a proper, sane, reasonable conversation about how to address long-term the future of NAM and a in a positive way by investing in it. But okay. in the meantime, that risk that's always put in front of us has, has, is, right. will be assisted by the protocol okay. tomorrow. But the campaign to develop the A&E continues, and that's my job and my work that I will do every day of the week. Patrick Albion, you think we'd all be better informed if that review was published? I just think this is too serious for people not to be accurate uh, in, in these issues. There are lives under threat in relation to this. We all saw that uh, Drogheda Hospital was turned into a car park uh, for ambulances just a few weeks ago. And for people to be saying that this review had in some way an effort to... Uh, invest into a shiny new operation there. It's just not true. Right. Now, I do believe that the HSE is isolated. It's isolated politically. It's isolated by the medical professionals uh, currently in this region. Now is the time for the ministers in this county to actually step up and take, to say that it's that they, this whole process of closure has to end fully and we need significant investment in our A&E so that 220,000 people who live in this county actually have an emergency okay. health service. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you both indeed very much for joining us on the programme this morning. Both TDs represent Mead West. We were speaking with the leader and founder of AIM2, Patrick Tobin, and Fine Gael Junior Minister Damien English. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Around half eleven yesterday, Jonathan Dowdall stood in uh, the Special Criminal Court to give evidence against uh, Gerard Hutch, who's accused of uh, the murder of David Byrne almost six years ago at Dublin's Regency Hotel on the 5th of February 2016. And Frank Graney was in court. A very good morning to you, Frank, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. There was a lot of interest in this. As I say, uh, the proceedings began around half eleven, but I I believe people were queuing outside of uh, the Special Criminal Court yesterday from about half nine onwards to try and gain access. That's right, and I've no doubt it'll be the same today. There were extraordinary scenes outside the Criminal Courts of Justice Complex yesterday ahead of Jonathan Dowdall giving his evidence. Um, Security measures at the building have been significantly increased since this trial began back in October, but they certainly stepped up another notch yesterday in anticipation of Jonathan Dowdall taking the stand. You had armed guardies stationed outside the courthouse. Um, they patrolled the perimeter of the complex. You had armed escorts accompanying both Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall's prison vans as they arrived separately yesterday morning. There were extra screening measures, uh, not just on entry to the building, but also at the entrance to the special criminal court and as you say a massive queue outside the building from early morning lots of members of the public braved the elements in the hope of getting one of the very limited seats in the public gallery 
huge media interest too. Up to 20 journalists sought entry. There was a list actually and uh, you had to wait until your name was called before you could pass the security post. That's the first time I've ever seen that happen uh, outside a courtroom. Inside the courtroom then, there were a number of plainclothes guardy with earpieces peppered throughout the, the public gallery. Four prison officers surrounded the dock where Jerry Hutch sat accused of the murder of David Byrne. And as you say, Jonathan Dowdall entered the courtroom at about half past 11. There's no jury in this case. This has been held before three judges of the Special Criminal Court. But there is a jury box in the courtroom that this trial was moved to yesterday to facilitate Jonathan Dowdall giving his evidence. The courtroom that we've moved to has afforded even more security to him as he has been brought in and out of the courtroom through that jury box. There is no jury box in the courtroom where the trial has been sitting until now. He was flanked by a number of Gardaí and prison officers and he was allowed to give his evidence from where he sat in the jury box as opposed to having to go across the courtroom past the dock and give his evidence from the witness box. The witness box is right next to the dock. In fact, where Jerry Hutch is seated in the dock, he would be the closest person to the witness box. But for whatever reason, security, you would imagine, Jonathan Dowdo was allowed to give his evidence yesterday from the jury box. He spent a number of hours doing so before the case adjourned until this morning. Okay, and uh, there were so many people there that uh, an overflow courtroom was made available to facilitate as many people as possible. And then when Jonathan Dowdall sat in that witness box looking at Gerard Hutch in the eye, I believe you couldn't hear a pin drop. You couldn't. And, and in fact, as far as I could see, Jonathan Dowdall not once looked over at the dock and it would have been in his direct line of vision, as you say, but he focused his attention on the prosecuting barrister, Sean Galan, who was taking him through his direct evidence and the three judges who have been presiding over this trial. Um, as I say, Jerry Hutch and the dock in general would have been in the direct um, eyeline of the jury box. And that makes sense because in trials where there is a jury, they want to be able to see um, everybody. Body language is very important in these types of cases. Jerry Hutch seemed quite impassive throughout. Um, he entered the courtroom a little before 11 o'clock in the morning, got into the dock. I noticed he was holding um, files, documents under his arm. He had a chat with one of his co-accused because, you know, you'd be for- forgiven for thinking, for forgetting that there are also two other men on trial, albeit not for murder. They're facing less serious offences. And Jerry Hutch had a chat with one of them before the judges entered the courtroom a few minutes later. Uh, Jerry Hutch is hard of hearing. He's been provided with headphones and special listening device so that he can follow proceedings closely. He stared straight ahead as Jonathan Dowdall okay. was giving his evidence, whether he was looking at Jonathan Dowdall as he gave it or not. I mean, it's hard to tell. You'd yeah. have to ask him yourself. But uh, certainly Jonathan Dowdall didn't seem to be paying too much attention to the doc. He did seem quite nervous when he came in. I think that's fair to say as he was swearing the oath and um, bringing a glass of water to his lips. You could tell that he seemed to be uh, quite nervous, but obviously a very stressful mm. experience for him giving yeah, evidence sure. before the Special Criminal Court. In uh, such uh, a way. And that evidence uh, was explosive, wasn't it? It certainly was. And I suppose on the opening day of this trial back in October, we got a flavour of what Jonathan Dowdall was likely to say in the opening address from the prosecuting barrister, Sean Galan, 
But obviously, you know, hearing it coming out of the mouth of Jonathan Dowdall um, was a lot more impactful. Again, this was just his direct evidence yesterday, and it's important to point out again, I'm at pains to point out that Jerry Hutch has pleaded not guilty to this charge, and his barrister will be given an opportunity to cross-examine Jonathan Dowdall on what he says in the jury box um, if he so wishes, and that's likely to begin at some point today or perhaps tomorrow. He began his evidence by, I suppose, talking about his own background and how he knows Jerry Hutch and how he knows the wider Hutch family. He, we learned, grew up in the north inner city of Dublin. He grew up in the Ballybock area. Um, we heard that he's known Jerry Hutch since he was a teenager. Um, he said he also he knew him through his involvement with a local boxing club. There were familial connections as well. Um, he, he, spoke, he spoke a great length about Patsy Hutch, who was a brother of Jerry and he would have been much closer to Patsy, you feel, um, and, and particularly Patsy's um, sons, uh, Patrick Jr., we heard, did an apprenticeship with um, with uh, Jonathan Dowdall. He, has an, he had an electrical company. He did that for a number of years, but he didn't finish that apprenticeship. Uh, we heard about another son of Patsy's going to uh, Spain, um, Gary Hutch. Gary Hutch was murdered in 2015, and his murder is seen as, I suppose, the catalyst for the feud that followed between the Kinnahans and the Hutches, but specifically in relation to what happened at the Regency Hotel and Jerry Hutch's alleged involvement in it. Um, firstly, Jonathan Dowdall claimed that Jerry Hutch collected some key cards for a room at the hotel from him and his father the night before the shooting. This room, we know, was later used by one of the gunmen and the Dowdalls, Jonathan Dowdall and his father, Patrick, are serving prison sentences for making it available to the criminal organisation behind the attack. He also told the court yesterday about a meeting. Now, again, Sean Galland touched on this meeting in his opening address, but it was very interesting to hear Jonathan Dowdall giving his direct evidence in relation to it yesterday because he claims that he attended this meeting at a park in Whitehall in Dublin at the request of Jerry Hutch just a few days after the Regency shooting. They met at about 11 or half past 11 in the morning, according to Jonathan Dowdall, and he described Jerry Hutch as being in a panic, and he said that this was after he had seen a photograph on the front page of the Sunday World. This photograph has already been shown to the judges. It was shown again yesterday while Jonathan Dowdall was giving his evidence. It shows two of the gunmen fleeing the Regency Hotel after the shooting back in February of 2016. And he described Jerry Hutch as being very upset, very agitated. He said he wasn't himself. He'd never seen him like that before. He described him as paranoid. At one point, he said that he became concerned about a man walking in the park. He suspected that he might have been a Garda. And when asked if Jerry told him who shot David Byrne, when that question was put to him by Mr. Galan yesterday, Jonathan Dowdall said that Jerry Hutch told him that he and another man had. So what Jonathan Dowdall did yesterday was he made a very, very serious allegation against Jerry Hutch, accusing him of telling him that he was directly involved in the murder of David Byrne. He said that Jerry Hutch wanted him, Jonathan Dowdall, a former Sinn Féin councillor, to set up a meeting with his Republican friends in Northern Ireland in the hope of putting a stop to the feud that would go on to claim many more lives. Indeed, the evening of this alleged meeting, we know Jerry Hutch's brother, Eddie, Neddy Hutch, was shot dead in his home in Dublin. Jerry was said to be very concerned that innocent lives were going to be lost. Dowdall yesterday in his evidence told the judges that he didn't want to know any of this. He didn't want to be told any of this. He compared it to being told where the money is buried in the sense that 
if that money then goes missing, people come looking to you for it. But he claims that um, he did he did tell him all of that. That's the allegation. That's his evidence. Jerry Hutch has denied it. And while he said yesterday that he had no intention of contacting anyone on Jerry Hutch's behalf, he told him we he would. We heard about uh, subsequent meetings then in the weeks that followed with Republican context. Specifically, the prosecution is concerned with one of those meetings that is alleged to have taken place on the 7th of March 2016, about one month after the shooting. We know about this meeting through um, a recorded conversation between Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall as they drove in Dowdall's Jeep to and from Northern Ireland. Jonathan Dowdall confirmed yesterday that he wasn't aware that the Gardaí had bugged this vehicle. All 10 hours of that recorded conversation have already been played to the judges and the prosecuting barrister had begun asking Jonathan Dowdall about certain passages of that conversation when a legal issue arose and that's when the case adjourned for the day and it's likely to pick up there assuming that that legal issue has been sorted out overnight it's likely to pick up there this morning well well no wonder there's so much interest in uh, the proceedings uh, and as you say a lot of people expected to attend the special criminal court again today we'll look forward to hearing your reports through the day frank and thank you indeed for joining us on the program this morning that's our courts correspondent frank graney Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. I'll just bring you a couple of comments now and then some more after the headlines if we have any. Imelda in touch to say Minister English is not convincing on the hospital issue. She says she's very disappointed in him that he didn't go out in March with people about the hospital. She worries that he's more concerned about retaining a seat than he is about retaining services in Navin and she says fair play to everyone in the Save Navin Hospital campaign for fighting the good fight without them. The hospital would have been closed down long ago. Pass said he was getting frustrated when he was listening to the interview this morning. He felt Damien English was interrupting Padder Tobin all of the time. And Pat says Padder Tobin was right when he said that Damien English was peppering his responses with it's my understanding. And he says it's obvious that Damien is floundering in trying to respond to what he's being asked. Pat says he doesn't often uh, give uh, credit uh, for holding government ministers to account, but he felt that this was local radio doing its job today. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Now, uh, a lot of people in touch with this actually very critical of the minister. Perhaps somebody uh, would like uh, to call in support of what Damien English had to say today. Margaret says, Damien English, what happened to the site for the new hospital in Navin? Uh, Another text from somebody who says Minister English uh, hasn't been seen for the last week uh, and doesn't seem to know anything about the situation. Margaret says, Damien, how can any patient get the best treatment if they're left lying in an ambulance for five hours outside our Lady of Lourdes Hospital or any hospital for that matter? It's inhumane and it uh, will result in deaths that are waiting to happen. Maybe we should go straight to the cemetery and not bother the HSC. Thank you indeed, Margaret, uh, for that. And to everybody who has been in touch with us so far today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, let me bring you some more of uh, those comments uh, that have been coming to us uh, about uh, the hospital. This review into 
uh, how to proceed in downgrading uh, the hospital in Navan that Stephen Donnelly is sitting on, according to one of our, our listeners, is not being released because it contains the steps to close the emergency department in Navan. And he knows who's coming uh, as uh, or what's coming. As for Junior Minister Damien English, uh, our caller was not impressed in uh, and expressed it in words that I can't repeat. Uh, somebody else, Carmel, says it seems Damien English has accepted the decisions taken to downgrade Navin over many years without asking why Navin Hospital is now deemed unsafe because it has been stripped of a vital resource. Vital resources, more to the point. Uh, I beg your pardon, Carmel. She says uh, to deport the people of Meath to other overcrowded and thereby unsafe hospitals in the region is just compounding the risk and not the solution. The narrative is facially flawed, she says. Thank you indeed, uh, Carmel, for that. Uh, a text uh, then from Marion Navin who says that the bottom line regarding our ladies is that not one senior manager has taken the decision to close Navin uh, and they'll never have to queue or depend on our local ED as none of them live in the region and if they get sick they just pick up the phone and they'll be met by somebody with a red carpet who'll fast track them into a Dublin hospital. Shame on those for making this decision. Uh, we'd uh, another text, two texts, two very similar texts, one from Eamon in Dunleer uh, and one from Desi in Balbriggan, uh, both pointing to uh, Damien English saying in the interview, let's be clear, uh, and how they heard it. Let's hear what Eamon had to say. Eamon said, morning, Michael. Why do you bring on Damien English if he says, let's be clear, and there's nothing clear about the conversation? Uh, we're not uh, all gombeans, uh, and we're not going to put up with that rubbish. Desi and Balbriggan said, one of Damien's English quotes is, Let's be clear about it, but he's anything but clear. Uh, he keeps changing the story. He always said uh, that this wouldn't happen, and uh, I think it's time for uh, him to think about his position, Desi says. Thanks uh, for that, Desi and Eamon. I think the minister was trying to be as clear as possible, and I think the minister is very clear that he doesn't want uh, the emergency department in Navin to be downgraded and doesn't expect that to happen. Margaret says, Damien, how can any patient get the best treatment if uh, they're lying in an ambulance for five hours outside of the Lourdes? I did read that earlier. Apologies. Thanks, uh, though, Margaret, all the same. Now, back to the weather very cold, isn't it? Uh, let's speak uh, to Anne Dempsey, Communications Manager and Training Facilitator with Third Age, uh, the not-for-profit organisation that runs Senior Line. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. It is exceptionally cold. It's 12 years since it's been uh, as cold as this. Uh, and I hope as I'm sure you do, that everybody listening to us at home this morning is warm and not afraid to keep their heat on. Well, we do hope it, Michael, but I don't know that, sadly, it is the case. Unfortunately, I mean, people are being said, look, you know, look after yourselves, keep warm, that's the most important. But I know from, I would say, some of the people's phone you, and we certainly know from Senior Line that people aren't doing that. They're too frightened, they're, you know, sitting uh, layers of clothing, cold, trying to trying to move around the house, trying to keep warm. It's really heartbreaking to hear some of our calls, Michael. Right. I have to say. Okay, and yeah. have they got money that they're not spending on heat? Some of that, and worried about um, winter fuel allowance. Will it last? And it's it's just it's just general feeling of anxiety, 
worry that I won't have enough, I can't have enough. And yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm, I would just suspect some people have been talking to you about it. I've heard you on other radio programs as well, Michael. So what we, what we, we are trying... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We're trying to encourage people to relax insofar as they can and have belief and know that it will be okay. But I suppose it's very hard if you're somebody on your own, on a pension, trying to manage Christmas, trying to do your best and you can see your your pennies going down, your 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 mm-hmm. your, your digital cash going down, whatever it is, and you just feel, I can't do this. Mm. I know, but you um, need to look after yourself at the same time, don't you? Well, you absolutely do. Mm. Like, one of the things, we were just discussing our callers yesterday in confidence of staff, and one of our one of our staff said, callers are saying to us repeatedly now, I haven't heard this myself, but a number of callers are saying to her, I hate Christmas. Mm. I absolutely hate Christmas. And it's a terrible thing to hear that Christmas, which is such a lovely time for so many people and a family time, but out of our callers don't have that. Right. Either... You know, they're, they're suffering from bereavement. They're worried about they won't be seeing people. They A lot of older people don't have a lot of hope at the moment, I feel. And that's very, very hard when you don't have hope. So one of the things we were doing, Michael, is that we're giving our volunteers extra support and an extra, we're, we're doing a refreshing course with our volunteers to help them help callers in terms of their own resilience and their own their own hope. And we have done a course for our volunteers and we have fact sheets in the for our callers, all kinds of hints and tips about keeping warm, about saving energy, about eating for your health, about trying to exercise. And our volunteers are keeping these by the phone to kind of help them help callers because it's very hard for our volunteers. Mm. They really care for callers usually and they feel they can't help them. It's very dispiriting for for them, do you know? So we want to support our volunteers to support our callers as best possible. Mm. We've had these series of courses which have been very successful and we've a whole new spirit in us 
let's let's help people get through Christmas. Okay, and the volunteers are answering calls every day of the year from 10 in the morning till 10 in the evening on 1-800-80-45-91. That's 1-800-80-45-91. And we'll repeat that number again in a, a moment, Anne. But I have to say, yeah. I really am saddened to, to hear you say that, uh, that, yes. uh, that so many people are calling uh, who don't have any sense of hope. No. They're not. They're not. They're not full of hope. I think they're kind of battened down. You see, is it, a, is it, is it, is context, is it a, a hangover from COVID? Well, I was just going to say that. I was going to say that our traditional, like a lot of people, phone senior line, Michael. Not everybody's very mournful than that, and some people to phone us to share to share with us good news, and we're we're, we're kind of their friends, and they know us, and they, yeah. they share good times and bad. But the traditional caller is kind of rather lonely and on their own and that's why they're phoning us and we are there for them and then in came COVID and their normal lives socialising and all of that they left and they were even more on their own and as I would have said to you before the callers that did least well to those that were kind of least resilient didn't have a good family circle didn't have a garden confined to house do you know mm. and so that was added another layer of difficulty and now we have this weather and cold and worry about the future and like I suppose old age ain't no fun in many ways mm. you know I know it, it, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I was just I'm going being, to say I'm that being... this cold weather won't last forever, uh, no, it won't. Uh, and it won't. you know, people people really need to turn the heat on and stay warm, whatever way uh, they can. I think it's probably going to rain on Sunday, and the temperatures will increase next week. So, for a few days, uh, in the overall scheme of things, especially when you consider how mild it's been up to now, uh, people yeah. really should I be agree. turning on the heat, shouldn't they? No, let's put out that message loud and clear, Michael. You're so right. Turn the heat on. Have faith, truck. Just keep warm as best you can. Make a hot spring for yourself. Walk around the house. Get out if you can in the past two and two icy. Yeah. Wrap up and just take each day as as. And as it, it may be as well not to go out for the next few days uh, because it's quite treacherous out there. Uh, it is I've, treacherous. I've we're heard people complaining. Yeah, we, we're having callers, Michael, and they're walking on the grass around their garden. Yes. Mm. Kind of. Oh yeah, mm, but you the foot, the footpaths are treacherous, uh, oh, and they're not absolutely desperate. They're not gritting the foot, footpaths, of course. No, uh, yeah, and yeah. at this stage, some of them are, are, are like skating rinks. They're absolutely terrible. But the thing is, Michael, the body doesn't know where it moves. The body just takes movement as plus. So walk quickly around your house. Just walk to every room. You know, I know it sounds ridiculous, but you will you will generate energy. You will have some exercise. You you don't, as I say, wherever you walk will be plus, will be plus. It doesn't have to be up a mountain. Round your house and round your house, a good speed, getting up a good speed while being safe is good. Yeah, or around a supermarket and uh, I know you oh, need exactly, to Exactly, le- yeah, around the yeah, library yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I know you need to leave the house to do that. No, uh, just just true. be very careful uh, because <laughs> uh, uh, they, 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 they worry about older people falling because uh, it takes uh, so much longer to recover from yeah, fractures and breaks all and all of that. Yeah, But yeah. I mean, I was being gloomy and doomy and you're quite right to inject a note of kind of trust and try and, you know, keep warm, 
have faith and trust mm. and take it each day and keep as warm as you can each day do whatever you need to do and trust that things will be okay indeed and you know the cold weather won't last forever uh, and uh, with the rain if we get the rain on Sunday and hopefully the temperatures will increase next week uh, then those uh, treacherous footpaths uh, will become user friendly again but in the meantime let's just remind people the senior line is open from 10 in the morning till 10 in the evening that's every day every single day of the year Christmas day Michael New Year's Day we're always here we're here from the from the statutory services are closed and, and it, you'll be talking to another older person who really understand and maybe have some of the same life experiences that you have so there can be extremely good and helpful conversation alright I, I said I'd repeat the number and so we'll do that now uh, 1-800-80-45-91 that's 1-800-80-45-91 always nice to talk to you Anne thank you for joining us this morning many thanks bye thank bye you Dan Dempsey is uh, the communications manager and training facilitator with Third Age the not-for-profit organisation that runs Senior Line Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, thanks uh, to Deirdre and Kells, who's very worried at the prospect of uh, the emergency department closing in Nav and people in Meath near the hospital. And she feels uh, that the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, should intervene and stop its closure. Uh, angry listener in Navin texts us saying, wish they'd stop playing politics with our lives. Drogheda Hospital was always under pressure long before Navin uh, was uh, to close. It's plain and simple. County Meath needs a full working new hospital, especially with uh, the fast-growing population. Please stop playing politics with our lives and how dare they try and tell me that they're not playing politics with their lives. I wish they'd get off their butts and do what they're paid to do. I'm sick to the teeth of them talking about this hospital. Politicians, we need action, says angry listener in Navin. Thank you indeed for your text. I was just saying there that a lot of the footpaths are treacherous because they're not being gritted. Uh, and thanks to Michael in Drogheda who says, great to see them gritting the Ratmullen Road footpaths on Friday. Well done for doing that, he says. Good news indeed uh, for everybody in that area. And thank you indeed uh, for your text, Michael. If you'd like to comment on the programme, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, as you know, the doll is to hear a people before profit motion, which will express no confidence in the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien. But before the TDs get to vote on that motion, the government will table a counter motion, which is one of confidence in Dara O'Brien as the Minister for Housing. Let's speak to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, who's on the line. Good morning, Sean, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. It's all but certain, isn't it? The government is going to win this, won't they? Yeah, more, more than likely, I'd be very, very surprised. And I think they'd be very, very surprised coming into this particular week of all weeks when there's a reshuffle if the government were to lose this. Uh, look, technically, the government only has a majority of one vote um, when you count them all down at Patrick Costello and then that's where we're going to back into the fold of the Green Party but in reality it's always been much higher when it comes to confidence motions because they managed to garner the support of some people from the opposition benches that like to say Joe McHugh or mm. Mark McSharry and, and former members of the parties but then also uh, in the independents who vote with them on various things Michael Lowry, Noel Greedish um, uh, Sean Canney, uh, maybe Carl Berry so some, some of those figures so th- these confidence votes have never actually been 
particularly uh, close when it came down to it. Okay, so what is the point to it? If it's a foregone conclusion and the government wins confidence in uh, the minister before anybody even starts speaking, uh, is it a political stunt as Darrell O'Brien is claiming? Well, people before profit would say it's absolutely not a political stunt. And when you look at the actual business of housing over the last two years, you would have to say they have an element of a point in questioning whether Dara O'Brien should be kept in his job, particularly in this week when all ministers are undergoing a private performance review ahead of the, the reshuffle. So in a way, we're just doing a public one uh, today with Dara O'Brien in the doll. And what people before profit will point out is that they think the housing crisis is worse than ever. The number of people on the homelessness or in emergency accommodation has been skyrocketing that barrier. That's a mental barrier that was there all throughout the last government and even at the start of this government of 10,000 people has not only been passed but well passed now uh, and you're seeing more than 3,000, 3,500 children and families in emergency accommodation every month which is is really a very very shocking figure and then when you look at the likes of rents as well, rents soaring up to record levels and house prices still very very unaffordable for an awful lot of people so people mm. who are offered are looking and saying well look if that's the, your minister's results, you shouldn't be the minister anymore and we should sack him ahead of the weekend now that the government will come back and say is this as Dara Ryan mentioned, look, this is a, a political stunt. He'll say that this is never going to be achieved and be done in two and a half years. And they'll point to figures like the fact that it's going to be uh, somewhere in the region, perhaps as high as 28,000 homes built this year when that, that sort of target, that magic number that a lot of commentators have set is 33,000 a year is what we need. So getting up to that, they've also, uh, this figure that has been trashed around a lot the last few days and will be again today of mm. uh, 16,000 first-time buyers having bought their home in the last 12 months, which is the highest number since 2007 or 2008. So there is signs mm. of progress there. But um, it also, I think, for people for profit and for other opposition parties sets a little bit of a marker for this government. They're not going to be allowed to go quietly into the changeover of Taoiseach and into the next term. And it's very much set down that the, the mark that, look, housing is where probably the next two years is going to be fought, almost certainly the next election is going to be fought on the basis of housing. The government absolutely needs mm. to get it back in order if it wants to have any chance of ever uh, retaining power, I suppose, at the next election. And the outgoing Taoiseach saying it's the biggest biggest social issue of our time. Uh, the incoming Taoiseach saying he's going to do everything uh, to uh, fix the problems possible. Uh, but that figure, that record figure of uh, the number of people who are homeless in the country really is shameful. 11,397 people uh, in emergency accommodation. It's just one of eight areas that people before profit have zoned in on to criticise the minister. They say there's eight things that could be done to help solve the housing crisis that the minister has failed to act on and three and a half thousand children, as you say, in emergency accommodation for Christmas. One of those, they say overall, he's failing to deliver on housing. One of the criticisms is it's not just that they're not reaching the targets, the targets aren't high enough. So instead of those 33,000 houses uh, that uh, they had aimed to build. It should be forty or 50,000 houses. Uh, they say it's developer-led. They say that there's uh, too many people in emergency accommodation, that there should be no-fault evictions. The local authorities, the county council should be buying houses uh, and uh, that there should be a right to housing enshrined in uh, the Constitution uh, in line with rent controls and uh, all of these things the people before profit motion claims the minister has failed to act on. 
Yeah, and look, I suppose not to be a defender for the government, but I could almost write what their arguments are going to be, having yeah. listened to them, I suppose, for so long at this stage. And um, what they're going to say back is that on the, the local authorities, that local authorities actually haven't been given the green light to, to buy homes at this stage, and they are now that it does vary quite wildly in how much the councils are doing that, so it doesn't need to be a, a sort of a broader policy. Uh, one of the, the, the areas on the targets is one that definitely needs review because, as we've seen, we've got a high, lot of press recently, a lot of the targets are based on the 2016 census, those new census results are obviously going to be in and are going to shift the goalposts. But also, the, the changing demographics of the last year, um, and we, I suppose we kind of forget how much has happened in the last year with the war in Ukraine and with the number of people seeking refugee status here, has really changed the game. For example, Roger Go- this is something that's going to come up in the, the reshuffle talks this week. Roger Gorman's department has been under the cost a huge amount more than maybe it thought it would be. The, the main goal for him going in there was to end direct provision and get all those out of accommodation. It's now fairly widely accepted that's not going to happen or certainly not going to happen in the short term because all those people who were looking to get out of direct provision are now also competing with the likes of first-time buyers and renters and other people for properties, but also uh, trying to house Ukrainian refugees in Ireland. So that is a headache that the government knows it hasn't totally squared yet. And in fairness, it's having great difficulty without there being a huge swathe more housing because really just buying up a certain amount and it's been as high as sort of 20% of the hotel stock, sometimes even more when it was COVID restrictions, isn't a sustainable long-term future mm. for dealing with that. And the homelessness one, I think, is one that we're all thinking about quite a lot this yeah. week because mm. while we might be warm in, in our own homes and turning on the heating and when people can afford to do so, there are a lot of people who can't and who are really, really suffering this week in the sub-zero temperatures. And that is an area that had sort of gone away as a problem for the yeah. government during COVID because, again, they were able to put people into those hotel rooms and emergency accommodations that now aren't available or are being used elsewhere and is one that really needs a, a very urgent strategy because with the cost of living crisis, with a potential, we don't know what way the economy is going to go, a potential recession maybe over the next 12 months, you can see more people not able to keep up with payments, more people getting kicked out of homes. And with this, that squeeze on supply, it is harder and harder, even for people with very, very good jobs, mm. to be in stable and rented accommodation. So, okay. uh, look, there's lots of areas that government has to has to address pretty, pretty sure. urgently, I would say, not just those eight that people for profit yeah. have, have outlined. But it seems as though uh, the vast majority of TDs will vote confidence in Dara O'Brien. Before he faces uh, that motion, the Minister will go to Michal Martin's last Cabinet meeting that he'll chair as Taoiseach and he's to bring new legislation in relation to planning laws. Uh, What do we know about this at this stage? It's fairly sweeping, in fairness, legislation. Uh, the, the biggest reform in decades of the planning legislation in this country and, and was fairly needed, I think, to uh, not only streamline planning, but also to restore some public faith in the planning process after all the controversies that on board Planola. And board Planola is going to be renamed. It's going to be renamed as the planning, permission, uh, planning Commission and restructured as well uh, with new structures in place. I think one of the more controversial aspects of this particular bill is going to be changes to judicial reviews, which is effectively appeals to planning positions that, uh, that go to the High Court. And one of the changes is that residents' associations will no longer be able to take those judicial reviews. It will have to be a single person or a single individual you know, who puts their name on the line uh, in court and their name online for the responsibilities as well, which will, I suppose, make it more difficult or certainly make it more uh, personal 
personal for uh, people in an area to object to these things. And that is one of the aims of these planning legislations, because there is a feeling, particularly in some uh, rural parts of the country when it comes to developments uh, like wind farms, but also other developments, uh, you know, that there is an element of nimbyism going on, that there is people for the sake of objecting, people not from the area objecting against particular planning developments, be they large departments or be they the even green energy developments as well. So the minister is somewhat trying to go down on that and also sort of fast track the planning process for mm. local authorities. It's something he's been working on with other legislation as well. Or to bypass them in some circumstances because quite often what happens now is you seek planning permission from your county council uh, and then people can take a, an appeal to Umbor Planola. Uh, but uh, there seems to be some... Uh, indication that with larger scale proposals that it won't go to the council uh, or be scrutinised by the local knowledge of uh, the councillors that it'll go directly to Ambor Planola. Yeah, there are, so, the, so it, it's sort of complicated and there's some ways, sometimes it will do that, sometimes when it's involved the local development agency, for example, and then other times where the local authority itself will be able to bypass pa- parts of the planning legislation and things like environmental assessments as well if they are building their own social and affordable housing. So it is about, uh, you know, the government will use the word streamlining. I'd say opponents will, will say that there's uh, going to be a lack of oversight in some of these and you, I just get a small bit worried when I hear about uh, going over some of that planning, particularly mm. when there is that local knowledge, because we all remember the likes of the, the badly planned estates and ghost estates of the past when things got too big. Now, we're obviously way off that number of houses being built, and there needs to be a, a faster development of houses. There's no doubt about that. But it just you do get a small bit greasy when you hear about skipping parts of the planning process because if they, they, they need to be built, but they also need to be built right. Okay. Uh, and uh, obviously, we're in a, an historic week. Uh, the Taoiseach uh, will travel to Brussels on Thursday and Friday to meet with other European leaders uh, and he'll come back uh, in uh, the final moments of him figuring as one of uh, those leaders in uh, the European Union. Yeah, it, it's weird. The, um, the European leaders, these council dinners, they usually do a little goodbye ceremony but the leaders that they know won't be coming back. So I think the last one was Mario Draghi, the, the Italian Premier got a bit of a send-off at it and uh, Michael Martin will be expecting the same I suppose on Thursday night when they, they meet to their dinner to discuss the, the various issues affecting the European Union, most likely inflation and Ukraine and then yeah, it's, it's going to be something of a historic week because he flies directly back from that then into final talks on Friday night and what the reshuffle will be those talks started last night between Eamon Ryan Leo Varadkar and Eamon Ryan about who was going to keep their jobs, so a lot of ministers going in to the cabinet meeting today wondering uh, could this be my last or could this be my last in this particular department should anybody uh, be worried I think the, the, the name that's come up consistently when people say should someone be worried is Stephen Donnelly um, but they, even that has sort of ramped back in the last little while and I get the sense it's going to be a very conservative reshuffle it's not going to be a mass uh, you, you know five mm. or six people out if there's one or two changes I'd be surprised much more likely I'd say you're going to see a bit of a refiguring of some of the departments as talk about giving Roger Gorman a bit more help for the reasons that I already spoke about earlier maybe giving him an extra junior minister or something or passing off responsibilities from some departments to another department to streamline things maybe moving a couple of, uh, of packs around but uh, the minute the, the, the leaders are playing it very very close to their chest so while, uh, while everyone I suppose is talking about the, outside, the ice outside a lot of ministers are wondering whether they get the cold shoulder later this week. <laughs> Very well put. Thank you indeed, our political correspondent, John Defoe. Thanks, Minion. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, some more of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Somebody in touch with us uh, saying uh, that the council hasn't fixed their heating and it's been off for weeks. No sign of anyone, uh, myself or the kids are uh, at home. Uh, They've been sick. Uh, They've had chest infections. Uh, and uh, our caller wonders what's going on. Is this right? I'm spending uh, 50 euro every two days keeping two electric heaters going, uh, sharing uh, the heat uh, between three of us. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for your text. Uh, we can give you a call uh, and uh, make contact with uh, the council for you uh, and see uh, if we can find out any more information about that. Uh, but we'd obviously need to know your name and your address, and that's why we'll be calling you if you keep your phone on uh, and. Uh, take the call if you wouldn't mind sometimes people text in like that and they don't take the call Uh, but please do and we'll try to see if uh, we can get some response and uh, maybe something can happen as a result of your text to the programme today. Uh, Mary has been in touch and she says Michael just listening to your conversation there this is with Anne Dempsey of Third Age and we were talking about the very cold weather and Anne Dempsey said uh, a lot of the callers to Senior Line don't seem to have much hope Uh, Mary says well I'm delighted that you're so happy Michael Uh, older persons are very down and depressed even in our nursing homes please do not try to patronise them God, I certainly wasn't trying to patronise anybody, Mary. I did say that um, I was very sad to think uh, that older people were feeling uh, hopeless without hope Uh, and uh, I am very sad to hear that, but I don't, don't mean that in a, a patronising way whatsoever. Uh, I was just making the point that this cold spell won't last forever, and I hope that everybody turns on their heat. Uh, very depressing if you're sitting in the cold, uh, and of course very dangerous as well. It could be detrimental to your health. Uh, but thank you indeed uh, for your text to the programme today. If you'd like to make comment on the programme, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. That's 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp us on 086 658. That's 086 or you can email Michael at lmfm.ie Now we'll hear some more comments uh, but this time from people who were protesting outside of Our Lady's Hospital in Navin yesterday and uh, the people who don't want this protocol to come in to play from tomorrow let alone the emergency department uh, to be downgraded to a medical assessment unit. I'm here today because my mum and my uncle um, all use Navin Hospital and saved their life on numerous occasions. They've since passed away so for our family Navin Hospital saved them gave them an extra 10 years onto their life in getting it um, my mum passed away four months ago so I really need Navin Hospital to be in the town for everybody for sports people for the pattern hit on it about the hospital end of it I've seen young fellas breaking their legs where would they get them to draw them when they're in severe pain this is the nearest to stop the road I just feel that uh, for the size of Navin Navin is such a big town and we, we really need our hospital and we need our ANA. We have a, a big mining tar mines out the road. Uh, God forbid if anything should ever happen, where would they bring the, the, the people, the miners, if anything really seriously happened? I mean, Trauda is the best part of 20 miles away. I mean, it, just, it doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. I can understand how the HSE can do this. To, to Navin and to the people of Navin. 
with a massive population of over 220,000. We have a square area of over 2,342 square kilometres. And to think that a county of that size and that population would be left with no service, it just doesn't make sense. And I'm inspired by the people down in Port Leash. They ran their campaign, they kept at it, and now they're considered to be one of the best regional hospitals in the country. So I just feel that we can't give up because my family members have benefited from the hospital here in Navan. All right, I, I would imagine that's uh, Carmel. Uh, thanks uh, to everybody who uh, spoke uh, to LMFM at uh, the protest yesterday. Just some more thoughts uh, on uh, the envisage changes uh, over uh, the coming days, uh, which uh, come into play from tomorrow. And indeed, uh, I suppose uh, the concern that is and has been for some time that uh, the emergency department uh, will be closed at some stage in the new year. Uh, Mary was in touch with us uh, on uh, the phone this morning. She says it was a little upsetting to hear Anne Dempsey describe the level of worry that there is amongst older people who contact Senior Line uh, about how they'll survive the months ahead in this very cold winter. It's terrible to think that people have worked all of their lives and paid their taxes and yet they find themselves in this position. The government should be hanging its head in shame as a result. Uh, Thanks Mary for your call and indeed uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, Another text, uh, it's a WhatsApp message uh, that uh, comes uh, to us uh, from Margaret who says, I hope that that young woman gets her heating sorted out. It's very hard to get tradesmen, plumbers, etc. They're run off their feet. I I think we're short of construction workers in this country. I think we certainly are, Margaret. I think that's one of uh, the problems uh, as well in terms of uh, the housing crisis. Uh, I would imagine uh, in the case of our caller earlier on, uh, it's a a matter for uh, the council to do the repairs if if it's a council house. Uh, But thank you indeed uh, for making contact with us. Now, I don't know if uh, you were... Uh, aware that uh, the celebration of 100 years of the Shannon took place yesterday. Uh, it was a, a very uh, auspicious occasion in Shannon with TDs and senators uh, coming together to celebrate 100 years of a very significant part of our democracy. Indeed, uh, the meeting of uh, the Shannon was addressed by the Taoiseach, Michal Martin. The establishment of Shannon Airden was deeply overshadowed by the events of the days and weeks which had preceded it. The election and appointments to the first Shannon were subject to little debate. When you read the record of the time, the overwhelming consideration was to ensure that there would be a place in public affairs for those who could never be expected to win in the polarised and intense elections to the Doyle. It was to be a place which, rem- which would remind us of the promise of the proclamation that different traditions would make up the nation to be served by a new, inf- by a new free and democratic state. Because of the ongoing civil war and a focus on other provisions, there was very little clarity about how the new chamber would work what its distinct role would be, or how it would operate in relation to Doyle Ayrton. However, there were very high aspirations for the quality of debate and the calibre of members. The new constitution came into force five days before the new Shannon convened. Article 30 laid out the requirements for membership, and this membership would be confined to those aged 35 and over, who shall be proposed on the grounds that they have done honour to the nation, 
by reason of useful public service or that because of special qualifications or attainments they represent important aspects of the nation's life. This was a highly unusual mix because it combined the idea of membership as a recognition of achievement with that of broadening representation. Even with this remarkable group of members, it was not representative, nor indeed was it intended to be. It was first and foremost a membership defined by finding a place in the new state for those who had not supported its creation and by making a statement about the place of minorities. In Europe, that was a time where new states were emerging from the ashes of a world war and civil conflict. In every case of a state which emerged from the treaties which followed the First World War, statements were made about re respecting minorities and those who had been loyal to the departed power. This was in fact a condition set by President Wilson before the peace talks began. Yet almost none of those guarantees were honoured in the following years. The Parliament established here was different and the first Shannon was a very important demonstration of this. That's Michal Martin speaking in uh, the Shannon at uh, a special ceremony yesterday to mark 100 years since uh, the establishment of Shannon Aaron. Uh, thanks uh, to Sheila who's been on the phone to us. Sheila is sick and tired of politicians using the hospital in Navan as a political football. She says we need to retain services in Navan. It is literally a matter of life and death. Politics shouldn't even come into it, she says. Well, thanks for your call to the programme uh, indeed today, Sheila. And thanks too to Pauline, uh, just to mention, Pauline, that we got your text message. Uh, you know who you are and we know who you are now and we'll make contact with the council on your behalf. And thank you indeed uh, for getting in touch with us today. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a, a number of incidents which Gardaí are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Kate Patterson of uh, the Community Policing Unit at Dundalk Garda Station joins us for the report this week and we're going to begin with an appeal for information about the grim discovery of a body in the Ashburn area over the weekend. That's right. Um, good morning, Michael. An incident room has been set up in Ashburn Garda Station following the discovery of, as you said, the body of a young male on land at Belgree Lane in Kilbride, County Mees, um, on Saturday the 10th of December. The young male's body was found wrapped in heavy material and was removed from the scene on Sunday for a post-mortem examination. Investigating Garda are appealing for information and would like to speak to anyone who may have been in the vicinity of the Belgree Lane area on Friday the 9th or Saturday the 10th of December. And I would particularly like to appeal to any motorists who may have travelled in the area, any motorists who may have dash cam footage are asked to make this footage available to the investigation team for examination. Now, anyone who thinks they can assist the investigation is asked to contact the incident room in Ashburn Garda Station, which has been set up. And the number there is 018010600. And as always, if you don't want to telephone that number, you can contact the Garda Confidential Line. Um, the number there is 1800 treble 6 treble 1. OK. We go to Dundalk next, uh, where Garda are investigating a, a burglary. 
That's right, Mar- Michael. So a burglary that took place this day last week, Tuesday the 6th of December. This burglary took place at the Miracle Land Church on the Castletown Road in Dundalk sometime between 7pm on the evening of Tuesday the 6th of December and 9am on the morning of Wednesday the 7th. Now the front door of the church was badly damaged when the burglars attempted to gain access to it and although they didn't gain access to the church they were successful in gaining entry to three porta cabins which were on the site by forcing open the doors. Gardy would like to speak to anyone who may have noticed anything untoward in this area between the hours of 7pm on Tuesday the 6th of December and 9am the following morning, Wednesday the 7th. If you have any information or you can assist the investigation, please contact Dundalk Garda Station. The number there is 042-938-8400. And there's a, another burglary to report on uh, this week. Uh, this break-in happened in Dunlear last Saturday evening. That's right. So n- not last Saturday, but the previous Saturday, I suppose, two Saturdays ago, Michael. Um, a wee bit further south, this incident took place in Drumcar in Dunlear. It took place in the evening of Saturday, the 26th of November. So the owners and occupants of the house, which was burgled, returned home and found three males running across the garden, fleeing the scene. Um, and we believe they fled the scene in a vehicle, possibly a dark-coloured Audi A3. A quantity of jewellery was taken during the burglary and the owners are obviously very, very keen to get this back. Those investigating the incident are appealing for information and in particular to anyone who may have been in the drum car or domain areas at the time of this incident and who may have dash cam footage. If anyone is in possession of dash cam footage that you think might be able to help us, please make it available. Um, you can contact Dunlear Garda Station on 041 6851202. Okay, so that's three males who made their getaway on foot. That's right, before okay. fleeing in a car. Okay, right, and that's uh, Saturday week ago, the 26th mm-hmm. of November, as you say. My apologies for the mix up no, of the no. day. <laughs> so, uh, to uh, last Saturday then, and uh, we move uh, to Navin and uh, a stolen car. Yeah, so Saturday the 3rd of December, um, it says investigations are continuing into the theft of a white. Range Rover Discovery Jeep in the Navin area of um, Saturday the 2nd of December, as you said. Um, the Jeep, which bears a 161 Dublin registration, was stolen from the Rathdrina area sometime between 10 past 1 in the afternoon and half 3 in the afternoon. So the Guardian Navin are investigating this and they're appealing to anyone who has any information or dash cam footage which may have captured this vehicle being driven in the Rathdrina area to contact them. And the number for Navangarda Station is 046-907-9930. Okay, very cold weather. You're asking motorists, uh, naturally enough, uh, to drive in line with the hardy conditions. Absolutely, Michael. And I think, um, like myself, many of your listeners will have woken up this morning um, to be encased in freezing fog. So the Guardian, louder than me, they're urging all motorists in particular to take extra care during this cold snap. The freezing temperatures have resulted in the freezing fog and as a result um, Met Erin has issued a status yellow fog warning for the Meath and the Louth areas. So we would like just to remind listeners of the Road Safety Authority's guidelines for driving in foggy conditions. I suppose the first thing is always use your fog lights when you're driving in dense fog and dense fog conditions. Know where your fog lights are, know where the settings are and know how to use them before you journey in your vehicle. 
the freezing fog will make the taillights of other vehicles seem that bit further away than what you think. So it's really essential that everybody slows down and drives a safe distance from the vehicle in front. In the freezing fog, you simply don't know what hazards lie ahead due to the poor visibility. Uh, The freezing fog can also make it very difficult to keep your windscreen clear. So if you have a defrost setting on your car's temperature gauge, then we would advise that you use it. Now, not all cars have this. Um, If your car doesn't have one, then what you can do is you can direct your car's heaters towards the windscreen to help keep the windscreen frost free. And a good tip from the Road Safety Authority when you're coming up to junctions is um, they would advise people to turn off the radio and open the window when approaching a junction. Um, because the visibility is low, um, you should use your ears and listen for any signs of approaching traffic or danger when coming up to a junction. Always remember then to turn your fog lights off when the fog subsides. And in adverse weather conditions, we would urge you to please make sure that your tyres are in good condition and that you leave extra time for your journey. Slow down, drive a safe distance from other vehicles and always ask yourself if your journey is absolutely essential. Is it safe to drive or should you perhaps postpone your journey? Garda Kate Patterson of uh, the Community Policing Unit in uh, Dundalk. Thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. That's our programme for today though and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.